You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. These podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you're not an authorised financial advisor, it's important you understand the content of this podcast may be difficult to follow, as it assumes you have the necessary training, qualifications and experience to understand the concepts discussed as well as the technical language used. If you still decide to listen, please understand the information contained in this recording is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. Any scenarios considered during this podcast are purely hypothetical and for illustrated purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. The sole purpose test is one of the foundation stone rules of the CIS Act, and that applies to everything a trustee, from setting up a fund to investing and maintaining the fund's assets, as well as to the payment of fees and charges from the fund. My name is Craig Day, and I'm the head of the Colonial First Act Technical Services team, and here to discuss the sole purpose test with me is our first ever guest, Peter Bobbin, who is Principal Lawyer at Coleman Grigg Lawyers. Peter has over 30 years experience in super and tax in both the commercial and personal arenas. Now, Peter, welcome. Thank you, Craig, happy to be here. Now, Peter, 30 years a lawyer. Some would say you get less for murder. <laughs> and, uh, and I started off as an accountant. So how's that for a mixture? <laughs> yes, I was an auditor at first, moved across yeah. to accounting, and then back in, 1988, I actually became a lawyer, and I've been happy ever wow. since. Wow. <laughs> Much happier than being an accountant, obviously. Well, well probably more paid. Well, more... <laughs> well perhaps. I'll, I'll let the accountants that are listening to perhaps make that view. Yeah, okay. Now, sole purpose test. Now, I, in my intro there, I, I kind of mentioned that the sole purpose test is a, is a foundation bedrock rule of the superannuation system. Now, this rule has always been around. In fact, it actually predates the, the CIS Act by some 20 odd years, I suppose, in the form of um, tax rule or tax case rulings um, through, the, through the courts. Um, and so I want to, rather than just jump straight into Section 62, because most of us would all be familiar with sole purpose test and core and ancillary benefits, but I want to go back to those original court cases and really give us a context of where the sole purpose test came from. And, and that relates to the tax treatment of superannuation funds. Do, can you explain how that used to work? Well, Craig, it's actually, for me, it's absolutely fascinating, um, the whole context of the sole purpose test, because this came about when the only thing that regulated superannuation law in Australia is the taxation concepts. And that's the, con the taxation um, powers of the Commonwealth of Australia. All of superannuation was built into the Income Tax Assessment Act. And that's when the tax office only had the most unwieldy power of recognising a super fund as, this is a phrase you'll recognise, complying with tax law or yep. not complying with tax law. And if you have a look at the old Section 79 funds or the Section 23 funds, you'll see that it has a reference to the, the super fund or the particular fund being applied for the purpose for which it was established, which was to provide to be a provident benefit 
or superannuation fund established for the benefit of employees. And that was a critical factor. That's your sole right. purpose so there. This is, so as I said, it predates this, but even before that, it's, it's purely just a, a tax rule. We don't have any, you know, 300 sections of CIS telling us how a trustee needs to behave. It was all just built into the Tax Act. It was all, it was all really simply built into the Tax Act. Because what was um, recognised is that back in those days, um, superannuation was tax-free. Yeah. So not only could an employer get a contribution deduction for putting money into superannuation, it was, look, I shouldn't say it was entirely tax-free. It was um, a 5% was taxable, and that's going back a number of years. 5% was taxable. And back in those days, these, these long-ago days, when the tax rates were up to 60% and so, um, the effective tax rate, maximum tax rate, was 3%. So that was a fabulous way of gaining a tax deduction, putting it into a fund, and then when it gets extracted, in the nature of being a provident benefit or superannuation fund for the benefit of employees, it effectively came out 97% free of taxation. So you can see the attractiveness as to why it was embraced back in those days. So this is pre-Paul Keating and, and pre-accumulation and pension phase. We just simply have superannuation funds being tax-free on their investment earnings. And for the employer, putting money in for the benefit of employees, uh, a deduction on the corporate tax rate. That, that, so, that's, that's exactly right. Um, in fact, you can even go back somewhat further than that because did you know that the very first superannuation fund in Australia was, um, and, and still remains, I think that's right, I think I can say, that is the Westpac or the old Bank of New South Wales Fund. That's how, how far it goes back. Some, I stand to be corrected on this, and if I find my own notes, I might let you know in a short while, but it's uh, um, what, something like 120 or more years ago. Wow, wow. There you go. So superannuation goes back a, a lot longer than 1993. Uh, now, <laughs> it does. <laughs> Now, now, with this, so obviously if we're going to have uh, very, very generous tax rules, then clearly superannuation is going to attract some people and some structures that might want to look and smell like being a superannuation fund, but weren't. And so we have a number of cases going back. I think Scott's case was, was the one that got gets mentioned a lot, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but out of those cases came some real key questions, didn't they? So um, do you want to run through those? So the first one really being, you know, has a fund actually been established? Well, that's right. And um, those of the people that are listening with grey hair or less hair may remember that back in those days, we talked about cherry picker funds or tontines. Tontine was uh, an example of a, the name of a case wherein a superannuation or a fund, I should say, was found to not be a superannuation fund. It was found to not be a superannuation fund. Why? Mm -hmm. Because we had a fund. Finding of a fund was easy because a fund is just a big pot of money held by another, the trustee, for the particular rules. The question was, this was the issue, the question was, was that 
a provident benefit or superannuation fund established for the benefit of employees? If the answer was yes, it was a superannuation fund. If the answer was no, then it wasn't. So you could have a fund established, but unless it was for that specific purpose, which it would be because you want to attract that particular tax treatment, then it might be a trust, but it's not a superannuation fund. That's correct. That's absolutely correct. So as the cherry picker name would imply, what some employers who are very attracted by this tax deductible and yet 97% tax-free status would do is that they would enrol members into a fund. They were, they, they were employees. And that's where the cherry picker concept came from because they'd be employed for the cherry picking season and at the end of the cherry picking season, they would be terminated. And the rules of the fund would provide that if an employee joined the fund and terminated prior to the vesting of the benefits occurring in their favour, then those benefits would forfeit. And commonly, there'd be a small class, generally the principles of the employer entity, that would be the member of beneficiaries in respect of whom the forfeited benefits would then transfer across to benefit them. So I'm bringing on some, when you said cherry pickers, I actually thought they'd be, you know, cherry picking, you know, picking the, the eye out of something, not actual no, fruit pickers. It, it's actually fruit pickers. based on fruit pickers. <laughs> that was the concept. So they, they would bring them in, employ them for the week, for the season, however long that is. They would, the employer would make contributions on those members' behalf. I'm guessing here that the fruit pickers didn't know that they were a member of... In, in circumstances where the tax office could prove that these people never knew that they were members, you can see why it became somewhat easy for the courts to then form a view. Hey, this was never intended to in fact be a provident benefit or superannuation fund for the benefit of employees. But sorry, yeah. please go on, Craig, you're explaining how it works. Yeah. So yeah, so, so then I'm, I'm making a contribution here for, for my cherry pickers, knowing full well that at the end of the season, I'm, they're, they're gonna cease employment with me. Therefore, they haven't vest, met the vesting age, which back in those days, probably 65 or maybe even somewhere in the 60s. Yeah, now co commonly it was somewhere in the 60s. That's, that's the yep. age of yep. 60, that's right. And therefore, so I'm getting a tax deduction for contributions for members of the fund that are never ever going to be there for vesting so therefore those contributions are actually going to benefit either myself or a small uh, number of principal employees of that particular employer so the well, city and head office of Cherico. Yeah see in, in, in effect it's Craig Proprietary Limited and Craig and Mrs Craig the directors are the default superannuation fund members and the monies that was contributed for all of these cherry pickers during the cherry picking season that did not vest in them ultimately was forfeited across and happened to fall into the accounts of uh, Craig and Mrs Craig. And, and do also remember that back in those days, um, we didn't have a requirement that superannuation had to be kept for retirement. That certainly exists today. But back in those days, superannuation could be released following the termination of an employment. Right. So what you would sometimes find is these cherry picker funds, as they were, came to be known, 
um, would be used for a number of seasons or years. And then the particular, in my example, I'm now using Craig and Mrs. Craig, would close the particular uh, entity that employed them, terminate an employment, cause their super fund, so-called trustee, to exercise the forfeiture in their favour. And because they've terminated the employment, they're entitled to receive the superannuation 97% tax-free. So they didn't necessarily wait until they turned 55 or now as it is 60 or 65. So I'm guessing it didn't take the ATO long to cotton on to, to these kinds of cases. So I think the, the seminal case here is Scott's case number two. Do you want to run through Because I think what the court found there was that there was no fund established. Well, that's right. Now, Scott's case number two, um, I often, when I'm describing this, help people to understand that Scott's case number two was 1966 and it involved Mr Scott, who was a lawyer, Mrs Scott, his wife, Mrs Scott's father and Mrs Scott's mother. How many members of the fund were there? There were four. Interesting, isn't it? The most famous, the most famous superannuation case in Australia that expresses the sole purpose test, 1966, um, been around for some, what is it now, 54 years, and it is what we would call today a self-managed superannuation fund. Yeah, there we go. Um, and Scott's case is actually really vitally important. It's vitally important in so many different ways because of so many different things it tells us. Now, what we were talking about a moment ago is your, is your tontoon or cherry picker fund, where yeah. it was ultimately available for the tax office that was able to demonstrate that this fund was set up, the employees never knew that they were members, there was never intended that they ever got the monies that was properly set aside for them, and it was always directed to go back to the principles of the business. So that's looking at this sole purpose concept, and it entirely undermines whether or not it is a superannuation fund. Scott's case is actually an investments case hmm. that had the same result. It had the same ultimate impact because um, what the court judgment, and I strongly recommend people read it, um, indicates or, or, or made clear, this is Justice Windia, we're talking about a high court decision from 1966, is that Mr Scott, this lawyer, was also into broad acre property development and apparently he did quite well. And he actually had, prior to establishing of this particular Scott's fund, this Scott superannuation fund for the Scott family, he had quite a bit of broad acre development. And he seemingly did so much of it that he was regarded as a property developer. And so all of the profits that were made were, of course, treated on income account got the bright idea that I'm going to use a superannuation fund to make these broad acre developments. So he set up this superannuation fund, notifying or noting himself, his wife, and his wife's father and mother, who were quite elderly and were on the books as employees of Mr. Scott. And he caused this superannuation fund to acquire land from some of his development companies. And they then went through the process of developing the land and selling them off. And again, remember back in those days, 
the profits made on the sale inside a superannuation fund were tax exempt. Because he had a he had a bit of a track record, didn't he? Because he used to go out and and purchase companies, defunct companies that had tax losses oh. sitting in them. I think he used to run what was it, London Dry Cleaning or something like that that he purchased uh, because it had tax losses sitting in there, and then used to run his property development businesses through those. Uh, and then when he ran out of those tax losses, that's when he discovered the delights of superannuation funds, it seems. That's right. You've obviously read the judgment, Craig. It does. <laughs> it, it is. It makes it's for interesting reading, doesn't it? And and for a case from 1966, um, it, it's, it's, and a high court case of that, it's actually quite entertaining reading. You can follow it reasonably well. It, it is quite an interesting case. Look, it is. And um, it is very much about the investments approach. And just to re-emphasise this, later on, when he had some property inside the super fund and, um, and he, he found that the tax commissioner was going to treat the fund as not a superannuation fund and was therefore just going to apply section uh, 99A rates of tax on the basis that there's income to which no person's personally entitled because of the structure of that fund, yep. he was then transferring property out of the fund back to his development entities. And he was actually transferring it at lower than market value rates. Lower than market, yeah. yeah. So um, he really copped it on both ends. So is one of the concepts here around, when you say it's an investment case around whether a fund is established or whether it's been established for the benefit of employees. So what I'm getting the gist of here is that the courts have, have looked at this and they've said, okay, well, you, you've set up what purports to be a superannuation fund. Um, for the benefit of employees and then you've gone and conducted your property development activities which have resulted in in quite large profits for this company but they haven't been necessarily sourced from the contributions. So the, the courts I think have concluded here that while what you're doing here is you're actually running a property development business um, and you've just put in place a, a series of documents um, purporting to make it all look like a super fund. You bought in um, your parents-in-law to make their uh, purporting to appear that there's some employees. Um, I think there was a small benefit paid at some point that was then immediately loaned straight back to the property development company. Um, and they've just looked through straight through all this and said, no, you're running a property development business. It's not a super fund because there's no... Uh, objective intention here to pay any sort of benefit to any sort of member, um, it's not a super fund. Now, look, that's exactly right. Um, what Justice Windia said, after looking at all, all, all of the facts, and then looking at the facts, it looked at the facts that existed at the time of first creation of the fund, looked at the relationship of Scott to the so-called employees being, it wasn't lost on Justice Windia that they were his parents-in-law, looked at how much money was in fact paid as a so-called retirement benefit, looked at the fact that the father-in-law was quite advanced in age and hadn't really received much money from this fund, again, so-called superannuation funded. Justice Windy has said, there is no essential single attribute of a superannuation fund established for the benefit of employees except that it must be a fund, bona fide devoted, as its sole purpose to providing for employees who are participants, money benefits, 
or benefits having a monetary value upon their reaching a prescribed age. And that so, is the sole purpose test. Yeah, so that's interesting. So that's where we get the, the concept of sole purpose being sole purpose. You can't have a dominant or main purpose. The purpose of the fund is only there to do one thing, and that is to provide retirement benefits for employees. And you can't have any other purpose of that fund at all. That's that's correct. and. That came out of the tax legislation as it was expressed in those days. And just as a bit of an aside, Craig, the particular name of the tax legislation at that time was the Income Tax and Social Services Contribution Assessment Act, 1936. Right. So it was all lumped into one back then. Oh, it well, it was. It was. It was actually Income Tax and Social Services Contribution Assessment Act. The cynic in me would say that the government of the day was using it as a means of raising money for social services, but then they spent it. So they, they, they kept the law, they just changed the name. They just <laughs> dropped and social services contribution mm-hmm. so that it then came to read Income Tax Assessment Act. Now, I think an, another really interesting case that's it's come through, now this was much later, I think it was in uh, the early 1990s, was the case of Raymore contractors. Now, Raymore was a legitimate business and they did have uh, employees. However, that also got struck down on sole purpose. But this is slightly different, isn't it? Sole purpose in relation to contributions. So it's coming back to that deduction. So contributions for the purpose of providing benefits for members or the dependents. You want to run through Raymore contractors for us? Um, well, yeah, Raymore contractors, um, a 1991 decision, and I'd also encourage people to look at a later decision in the same year, Roche's case, um, both very much turned on the whole context of how this sole purpose um, concept needs to be applied in superannuation. In In fact, I actually refer to both of those cases as extending the sole purpose test to apply to contributions. Um, Raymore contractors expressing that the possibility that it applied not only to the very issue as to whether the fund is a superannuation fund and suggesting it could even be applied to contributions. And later in the same year, Roche's case, wherein Justice Pincus in that particular judgment made clear that the sole purpose test really does also exist in claiming tax deductions for superannuation right. contributions. So this was a situation where we, where we had the business and it was making contributions to a, to a superannuation fund that had been established for the employees. So once again, we had these vesting ages. Um, now, what would then happen is the super fund, so this obviously predates the in-house asset rules as well, because that super fund that would pay no tax on those contributions, so therefore obviously predates contributions tax. So 100% of the contributions would go in, no tax would be applied. And then the super fund would immediately lend all of that contribution back into the business for working capital. Now, well, yeah, that was an, um, not quite all of it because that was the old uh, 70-30 rule. Um, right. Yes, you had to have uh, 30% in government bonds. I think it was ah, uh, okay. uh, 10% in federal, 20% could be in state. I might, I might, uh, someone might correct me, it might be the reverse of that. So commonly, you claim $100 as your tax deduction in, as a contribution and you'd immediately lend back 70. 
So it, this is also an interesting case. So I, I remember reading through, and I think it was the financial controller or something gave some evidence, um, and I'll read it off here, um, talking about this structure where the contributions were made in and then and money's loaned back. And they said the whole point of the fund was that the contributions were to be lent back. There was no way we would have made the contributions if we had to secure it or get interest back on it. There would have been very little fund at all, in the fund at all, and we probably would not have been there. And further, there was subsequent evidence to that to say we could not have afforded to make the contributions if they were not able to be lent back as working capital. So that kind of begins to bring it back if we're looking at sole purpose of the contributions. The objective evidence here seems to be, well, were you making contributions to benefit the employees or were this, was this uh, a tax scheme which was being utilised to get working capital back into the business, I suppose, without having to go out and borrow? Um, the other interesting side of this was, was whether or not um, the members actually received any benefits. So did you want to make some comments there? Well, they didn't was the, uh, the, the key to it. <laughs> in fact, what, what did they do? They, they, they had vesting ages. I think it was what was it? Oh yes, and, men. Um, yeah. There was there was the vesting ages, and they kept a record uh, of uh, the relative age and employment status of the individual members, um, those who were in five with who who were within five years of the um, particularly uh, the particular vesting rules of the superannuation arrangement. The obvious implication was that they always made sure that no one, no one ever got to an employed age with the, with the particular employer such that they, uh, the benefits vested in them. Yeah. So obviously in this situation, a lot of these members never, well, employees never knew that they were a member of the fund. And in fact, I think there was also some evidence in that case of, or, um, of someone, one of the, the people there saying, you know, did you ever talk about to the employees of the fact that if they just held on another month that they would, and, the, and the, the response back was it was not my business to talk to the to the employees about whether or not they were a member of the fund. So, which obviously left the conclusion that they never knew that they were a member to begin with. And the view was not only that they never knew, it was intended that they never knew. They never, never knew. So, so we got the out of sole purpose cherry picker style or tontine. We've got the classic enunciation of the sole purpose test in Scott's case. Um, I'd like to also just quickly raise with you uh, Craig Roche's case, which is yeah, Justice yep. Pincus mm -hmm. in the same year. Very quickly, the facts on that one were there were two young accountants who were taking over the partnership interest of the older accountant. And what they worked out between them is that the two younger accountants would employ the older accountant. So the two younger accountants would take over the whole accounting practice and they would then employ the older accountant. And over a series of years, they would then contribute as a deductible superannuation contribution into the business superannuation fund, predominantly for the benefit of the older accountant. And the agreement was that they would continue to contribute hmm, enough to effectively pay out the older accountant's interest in the practice. In other words, they were using ah. the superannuation fund to claim a tax deduction so as to give effect to and achieve the ability for the young 
accountants to then acquire the interest of the older accountant. These cheeky accountants, eh? Who would think that they would dream up? <laughs> Who would have thought? So, so there, there's Roche's case, um, which very much extended the whole sole purpose concept of not only being the fund itself, but also being the contributions to the fund and whether or not they were um, a deductible because where the purpose of the contribution was so as to achieve other than a retirement provident superannuation benefit to the members, in this particular case, it was to achieve a buy-sell of a business interest, um, then the sole purpose test was in breach. Wow. Okay, so out of those case law concepts, we've, we've got a couple of things that I've heard. So first of all, purpose, you look at everything. You don't look at uh, an individual transaction. You look at all the facts and circumstances surrounding uh, the case and that purpose has a meaning which refers to the end in view taking into account all of those external factors. Um, also it sounds to me as if we're looking at an objective analysis here and subjective or however you want to dress it up has got potentially very little to do with it. Uh, can you, do you want to make some comments? Yeah, look, I, I know we're going to talk about a more recent uh, case of sole purpose and those who are listening might be feeling somewhat depressed because we keep talking about cases where the sole purpose test was breached and the particular objectives that were sought was failed. More recently, uh, there's the Aussie golfer case. Now, we won't look at the Aussie golfer more directly just at the present, but one of the things the court said there was when you're looking at these factors, what you're looking to identify is what is the subjective intent of those involved looking at their intent objectively. Now, what does that mean? Subjective intent, but looking at it objectively, it's just what you said, Craig. The courts are looking for all of the surrounding facts. You lay them all out on a table and then by looking at the facts, the steps, the occurrences, what occurred, you then discern what must have been the subjective intent sought to be achieved. Going back to your cherry pickers and your tontines, it was, I subjectively never intended to benefit the employee in respect of whom the contributions apparently were made because that's what the facts suggested. Going back to... Scott's case number two, this was all about me doing my property development because I'm a property developer, doing the property development inside a tax exempt environment. And it was never about benefiting my father-in-law who was my employee. And then coming more um, recently, and that's 1991, Raymore Contractors and, well, particularly Roche's case because that was never about providing a financial benefit. The fact is the financial benefit was provided to the elderly accountant who'd retired from the accounting practice. But it was not about that. It was about claiming the tax deduction for the young accountants. Mm. Again, objectively looking at the facts to discern what the intention was of the parties who were part of the arrangement. Right, now... Obviously, as we go through this, sometimes you're going to end up with 
incidental benefits. So sole purpose test, and I think uh, uh, some of these cases have specifically dealt with the issue of, of incidental benefits. So, you know, when, when I'm making a contribution to a superannuation fund and I'm getting a tax deduction for that, um, obviously there's a benefit being provided to the employer or you can have sometimes trustees of super funds um, investing in things and getting some sort of incidental benefit back out of the fund. Um, but the, these court, court cases confirm that that doesn't cause a problem with sole purpose. No, it doesn't because what they identified is that was a simple consequential follow-on or outcome, the, the, the gaining of the tax deduction. Yep. So you haven't in somehow sought out or negotiated or sought to get that particular benefit. I suppose um, if from a sole purpose perspective, if you're looking at a, an incidental benefit, that a benefit can't be incidental if that was the purpose to, to obtain that benefit, because then it becomes the driving motivator of what you're what you're undertaking. If that doesn't well, link to a retirement benefit, well, that, that, that's, that's right. But, but do understand, or I mean, as you and I both know, um, the context of the sole purpose test actually itself has evolved over time. Back when it was merely within the Income Tax Assessment Act, remember it used to be called the Income Tax and Social Services Contributions Assessment Act. Um, what I say is that the, the, the phrase for the purpose under the tax law, it actually said being applied for the purpose, the incomes of the following funds provided that the particular fund is being applied for the purpose for which it was established is tax exempt and they were then listed to be a provident benefit or superannuation fund established for the benefit of employees. Now, it used the phrase being applied for the purpose. Draw a distinction with that to what's expressed in the CIS Act. And what the CIS Act says is each trustee of a regulated superannuation fund must ensure that the fund is maintained solely. Now, that's where I draw a distinction between the two concepts of sole purpose. I was around in the pre-CIS Act days, and the pre-CIS Act days, sole purpose really was considered to be sole, so much so that back in those days, we superannuation professionals would say that superannuation funds can't even run a business. Mm -hmm. But the introduction of the 1993 CIS Act and the change of language meant that that fell away. The difference... So can you, just, yep, can you just pull out that difference again? For yeah. Me? So I know that the Section 62 talks about the fund being maintained. What, what was the previous... In the previous one, prior to the CIS Act, it said, um, provided that the particular fund is being applied for the purpose. So and it's applied for compared to maintained. Correct, correct. So being, being applied for the purpose was considered to be a narrower view and that's where it became that's where the the concept in justice windier's eyes out of scott's case number two being applied to the purpose meant solely and so in those days one couldn't even run a business in a superannuation fund whereas from 1993 cis act it changed to an outcomes approach the question was was it being maintained toward the purpose and there was if you will, a little bit of a relaxation to what we still describe as being the sole purpose test. Um, 
that little bit of a relaxation is incidental purposes are actually quite okay, provided that they are nothing more than incidental. Right, okay. So if we look at Section 62, as you've, as you've just mentioned, we're, we're now working with this outcomes test. So um, they've brought it back to, to core and ancillary purposes. So they're, they're basically saying that the trustees of regulated super fund must maintain the fund solely for the provision of one or more core purposes or one or more core purposes plus one or more ancillary purposes. Now, that doesn't sound like what we've previously been talking about. It, it, it sounds much more broadly written. Now, obviously, core purpose talks about the provision of retirement benefits and the benefits from age 65 and death, death prior to retirement. And then for ancillary purposes, that's where we get all those um, invalidity benefits and, and death benefits post-retirement, plus things like compassionate grounds, because ancillary benefit includes other benefits the regulator approves in writing. Um, so how it, it just seems to be much more ambiguous, maybe you can say, or broadly written than you would have thought that you would get out of all of these cases that are very specific. Is it just as simple as it's just coming back and looking at the outcome? It, it very much turns on coming back and looking at the outcome. It, it, it really is. Uh, there was a particular quote, if I can locate it again. Yes, here it is. This is from Justice Windia back in uh, 1966, Scott's case number two. In looking at the particular fund in question there, Justice Windia said, the meaning and relationship of reality substance and form are generally generally resolved by asking did the parties who entered into into the ostensible transaction mean it to be in truth their transaction or did they mean it to be and in fact use it as merely a disguise a facade a sham a false front concealing their real transaction objective looking at the facts and discerning what the true intention was and looking at everything. That's the approach right. that needs to be taken. Only so when, now when we, we can do incidental. Right, okay. So so now that we've got section 62 written into the CIS Act, we obviously then um, look at sole purpose. Now sole purpose obviously very clearly applies to all super funds, but it's very probably much more relevant real in the SMSF context because we get the individuals who are the trustees not only um, transacting potentially with related parties but also the assets that they're acquiring um, need to be maintained purely for a retirement purpose and when that's something like a, a Ferrari or a piece of artwork that's sitting on the wall um, sole purpose very much comes into play so the, the interesting thing, I, I suppose, I mean, the ATO went through in self-management fund ruling 2008 number two and reiterated a lot of what we've just talked about. So they say within that ruling that it requires an objective assessment surveying all the events and circumstances surrounding the fund. So very much like what we were talking about. Must be complied with at all times. It's a strict standard. Um, so requiring exclusivity of purpose, so coming going all the way back to Scott's case, the sole purpose and exclusivity of purpose. Um, they also talk about incidental, remote or insignificant benefits do not in themselves re result in non-compliance. Um, and also one of the interesting things I, I found out of that ruling and reading through is um, very much what's okay in one fund may not be okay in another. It's all about having a look at 
objectively what drove the decision making of the trustees. So you could potentially have two investments in identical investments, whether that be a business real property or shares in some sort of um, company or trust. Um, and you can look at that and objectively analyse to say, well, why did you do this? And if you can come back to say, well, hand on heart, an objective analysis of that shows that the decision was based on the projected investment returns from that particular investment and that aligns with the, the requirement for us or the objective of the fund to pay a retirement benefit compared to potentially the availability of some sort of benefit to the members or trustees themselves that you can get situations where an identical investment wouldn't pass the sole purpose test. I agree. Do you agree? I know. I, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, and and it, it, from my perspective, being a superannuation, a former accountant, now lawyer, um, who's grown up with all of this superannuation law, um, it's because I lived the sole purpose days that I understand that distinction that you're trying to draw. I mean, you made mention about people using the superannuation fund to acquire Ferrari or works of art. Mm. There was an old um, board of review decision wherein a, the, the commissioner took a barrister to task over the fact that the barrister had works of art in his superannuation fund. Obviously, this was well, well before the particular regulations that prohibit or place great limits around works of art in a fund. And what the commissioner sought to argue was that the superannuation fund was being used other than for the sole purpose of superannuation was being used to provide the barrister with the benefit of works of art. And um, what was brought out in that particular judgment was that the works of art only ever comprised, I think it was possibly up to 42% of the total investments of the fund. And even the tax office commissioner's art expert had to recognise that the barrister chose art very well and that the art turned over. And when the art turned over, it usually turned over at a profit. And what the, what the board of review at that time, precursor to the tribunal, um, said was investing in the manner that the barrister did in works of art, though, of course, hung in chambers and so forth, um, investing in those works of art were no more risky than investing in penny-ante um, mining stocks on the stock market. So it very much is a singular case-by-case. Case. Um, in that particular case, clearly, the facts demonstrated that not only did the barrister have particularly good art recognition from an investment perspective, um, attributes and skills, but they actually applied it and applied it in a manner which was to the financial benefit of the fund. Of the members, yeah. Um, I, going back a fair while is the old Coles My Discount Card, which I, which I quite often like to use as an example, I suppose, of incidental benefits here. Um, and uh, where a slight change in that scheme um, did actually result in the regulators coming out quite strongly and saying, uh, 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 you do that, and that, that will be a breach of sole purpose. Um, did you ever have, uh, not run-ins, but experience with the old Coles, Coles Meyer discount? Oh, look, I absolutely did. I, I, uh, I personally also held 500 shares in, 
in, in Coles Myers. And why? Because I wanted that discount card. Because I, uh. I think I, you ended up getting 5% discount on all your purchases. And right. the way... Did you do that through your super fund? <laughs> well, we need to keep some secrets, don't we, Craig? Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, what happened back then was um, there was no... The, you just got the discount card. If you held 500 shares, you got the discount card. And what the commissioner um, had to accept back then was if you acquired Coles Meyer uh, shares and you happen to hold more than 500, and commonly you need to have at minimum a uh, marketable parcel for ASX purposes, um, then you simply were given the benefit of a Coles Meyer shareholder discount card. And that was it. And the commissioner had to accept that the character of receiving the Coles Meyer discount card in the absence of anything else, because that's what all these cases say, in the absence of anything else, will not breach the sole purpose test. But if the objective evidence makes it clear that the intention was to gain the benefit of the card, which later transpired, then it became a problem because what happened is Coles Myers changed their rules and it was available to acquire Colesmeyer shares that did not give rise to a shareholder discount card entitlement. You had a choice. I could buy shares that gave the shareholder discount card entitlement or that did not. So and I think what was it? The, the, the small difference was that there would be a, a deduction off the dividends to pay for the administration and, of the scheme. And that's what drew the distinction between the two. Yeah. And yeah, it was that as soon as you did that, as soon as you did that, you were making a choice to select the gaining of a benefit. So you're doing so to the financial detriment to the fund to benefit yourself. And we were now in those days. I think we were still in the sole purpose tax act standards. Oh yeah, okay. Because when did this would this scheme change? When that was early two thousands, wasn't it? Uh, no, it was. So we must have been. Yes, we must have been in the uh, in the CISAC standards. CISAC. Yeah. Yeah. Because I remember being a young whippersnapper in technical services back in those days, and uh, and that announcement came out, and my manager at the time said, "Off you go and research that." And that was one of the first things I ever looked at in terms of sole purpose. So that would definitely have been um, post post CIS that came in in 1993. Now, you mentioned before um, the the good news case in terms of the Aussie golfer case, um, but it didn't start off so rosy for the the people involved in this case, did it? I mean, I think the initially the, the ATO went this particular fund um, and they went to court and the fund lost the initial case. That's do right. Outline, do you want to outline what happened here? Well, um, it's fascinating what comes out in these judgments. You really do wonder how it is that the commissioner can get all the information that they did. And it, it really does um, highlight the importance of good, proper, careful file recording notes. Because um, this particular Aussie golfer uh, superannuation fund was related to a senior sales executive of a business known as, I think it was Do uh, um Domacom. Domacom, that's right. Yeah. And where their objective was to sell fractional interests in real estate. That was their objective. And they did this via um, a 
relatively complex, I must say, um, trust managed investment scheme trust structure, which then gave a person to invest the ability to invest in a fund and gain a fractional interest in underlying real estate that the fund itself held. So and before we go much further in, yes. sorry to cut you off, go on. we'll probably just say at this point there's an in-house asset aspect to this case that we're not going to go into because that's a that's a whole another hour podcast. Um, but we'll just ignore that. I think that the, the ruling came out that it was an in-house asset breach um, as well. But just to focus on the sole purpose aspect of the the use of this particular property. Well, and and that that was the appeal decision, wasn't it? Because in the initial decision, it was found to be both a breach of sole purpose as well as, uh, and and that was the the as well as there being an in-house asset problem, but but it was a sole purpose test issue that was seen to be the major factor in the initial decision. But on appeal, um, that's when the court took the full federal court took a different view as to sole purpose. Took a um, a, a very much more again pragmatic view. But the case ultimately fell over against the taxpayer because there was a breach of the, of the uh, in-house assets test. And that was yeah. more to do with the fundamental structure of the trust and uh, um, uh, trust of funds modelling that was used to give these uh, fractional interests in real estate. So with the, with the use of the underlying property, so if we just ignore the fractional property investment side of it, if we come back and say, right, so... What's happened here is the super funds invested via this fractional property arrangement, which would then give the trust or the super fund the ability to point out a particular property that they wanted to buy, is my understanding. Yeah. So then they would invest into the trust, the trustee of the trust would go off and buy that trust. And then what happened was that, I think that was student accommodation. Yeah. And then the trust through a property manager let out that trust to two or three completely independent, non-related parties. And then after two or three years, they, through the property managing agent, they put the daughter of one of the members into that particular property on identical terms and conditions. Was that the situation? Um, that was the situation. And, and, and the issue there was the fact now that the daughter was living in this student accommodation um, did that result in there being a breach of the sole purpose test? That, that and the ATO and the initial court took the view that it did breach sole purpose. That's that's correct. But then it went on appeal, and yeah. the full federal court formed a view that well, before it was being let according to a specific leasing terms at a relatively speaking market rate to people that are entirely unconnected. After it was being let on those same terms again at market rates to people that are completely unconnected. During the time that the daughter was occupying the property, they were the same leasing terms. During the time the daughter was occupying the property, it was in the same market recognised amount. There was even a copy of an email correspondence seemingly between this sales manager for Domincom, wherein he made it clear that he really wanted to test how far the sole purpose concept might go by having his daughter occupy that particular part of the property. And the commissioner put that forward as being an indication or evidence of breach of sole purpose. And again, what the court said is, you have to look at the objective facts. 
to look at what the subjective intent of the fund was. The mere fact that the director of the corporate trustee might themselves have a personal objective which is more connected with his own employment was just a matter for the director as such. Looking at the objective facts, the way in which everything was managed, it was still nevertheless for the purpose of retirement benefits. And that the the subjective view of the trustee, the corporate trustee, was sole purpose. Yeah, so the... So putting it all down on the table, looking and working through it all, the, the courts basically formed the opinion that there was nothing here to indicate that the, that the decision to acquire this particular investment property uh, initially was driven by anything other than the desire to provide retirement benefits to the members. And the, and the simple fact that the daughter was now leasing this property three years later would make or would result in no different outcome to the fund whatsoever. Um, it's exactly the same outcome. It's going back and looking at that initial decision and what was that driven by? What what was the objective facts of that that you can conclude and you can't conclude anything other than, well, there's nothing there to suggest that the trustees weren't simply investing to provide retirement benefits. Objectively looking at what the intention of the trustee is. Now, the really interesting thing about this case, though, is that one of the the judges, and I can't remember which one, did make a comment to say that the outcome could have been quite different if, one, obviously the property had been let for less than market value. So that's fairly obvious, I think, what we've been talking about. But the other one was if the fund had amended its investment strategy to achieve this particular outcome. So I think what I do there is I, I rewind back and say, okay, let's just say that the, we've got a daughter there, maybe she's um, a single mum, she's got a couple of kids, she's got problems with um, maintaining employment because her personal circumstances, she's been kicked out of the last couple of rental places because of non-payment of rent, and then all of a sudden dad's self-managed super fund comes in and amends its investment strategy. It was hundred percent invested into let's say you know shares or you know growth investment profile all of a sudden hundred percent of the fund is now in a investment property which has a materially different risk profile and then the next thing we know is the daughter is in there leasing it yes at market rate but I think that then you go back and look at the objective objectively what drove that subjective intention and now it's got all about providing a roof over the head of your loved one rather than providing a retirement benefit. That's absolutely right. Aussie Golfer is not a decision that allows relatives to live in superannuation fund properties. It's absolutely not. Um, Changing things so as to achieve an outcome and that outcome is not of a superannuation retirement purpose is actually a breach of the sole purpose test, even though... In all other circumstances, it all stands up from a market value assessment. Yeah, so this is where it also gets quite interesting. So the ATO put out a decision impact statement, didn't they, following this? And they quite clearly call out those points that you've just made. So what they've said there is the Aussie golfer case does not support the view there will be no breach of sole purpose if market rent is paid. And they further go on to, to say that there will be a breach if collateral purpose is to lease the premises 
to a related party even if market rent is paid. Now, the interesting thing that I note with that though is what happens where we've got a self-managed super fund that wants to go out and purchase a business real property, which is allowed, and then to lease that to a related party, which is allowed, um, but where the size or the position of the property that, you, that the super fund wants to acquire is purely predicated on the related party business needs. Does that begin to cause a problem? Uh, look, the, the short answer, Craig, is yes, it does. I don't really want to sound alarmist. I don't. But, and th this is part of the point that I was making earlier, satisfying singular rules in superannuation, such as must, it must be business real property. If it's acquired from a member, it must be uh, leased if it's being uh, in a written registered lease, if it's being leased to an associate, it must be at arm's length. Satisfying all of that is satisfying very specific rules in superannuation. Never, ever, ever forget sole purpose because the path of getting there, how you describe what the intention is and how you describe the benefit that's obtained may actually lead in a circumstance where what is acquired is property commercial that is leased back to the employer or, or is leased to an associated entity is nevertheless a breach of sole purpose, which of course yeah, so, is disastrous. Mm, now, I suppose, you know, <laughs> when you say you don't want to alarm people, I, I can imagine that there would be many, many advisors out there that have provided advice fairly, you know, straight down the line of, yes, the, the rules allow you to go and buy a business real property and yes, you can, uh, you can lease it back to yourself. I suppose, how far does it go? Because I can remember, oh, this is probably two to three years ago now, I had an advisor call me up in the tech team um, and he had a client that had a, a property in the far northwest of Western Australia. So literally as far as you could get from anywhere. Um, and this was uh, a block of land that he was um, extracting some, I think it's some quartz silica sand out of an ancient riverbed. So, you know, quite kind of very environmentally friendly kind of business. Um, and what he wanted to do was to transfer um, the property into the self-managed super fund. Now, the reason why the advisor was giving me a call was how do you go about valuing this particular property? Because this property literally was in the middle of nowhere. It was coming to the end of its lease. Um, and when I said, well, how do you value it? He says, I don't know. I couldn't, I couldn't give anyone to give us a value. And I said, well, why does he want to acquire it as an investment for the self-managed super fund? And the comment came back was, well, I think he needs some capital out of the fund. And it was just that expression right there is, okay, well, yes, you can do this, exactly what you were talking about, Peter, that, that you are, you're satisfying these individual specific rules. But if you stop and look, step back and look at what is, what is the member trying to achieve here? And is that, to do with providing retirement benefits, no. It's this whole decision is is predicated around releasing uh, money out of the releasing yeah. money out of yeah. the superannuation fund. I've got a property, yeah. and I need cash yeah. for whatever yeah. reason I want. I want to buy a residential yeah. home. I want to go on a fabulous first class trip holiday. I've got a property. I've got cash. I know. I'll transfer the business real property into my superannuation fund and have it pay me cash. We have a breach yeah. of sole purpose. I remember another circumstance, once again, you know, this would probably be even longer ago, probably 10 years ago, where an advisor called me up one day and said, um, I've, got, I've got a client that's just gone through a, a family 
uh, law separation. Uh, they're going to get the proceeds or half the proceeds um, from the sale of the family home, but that won't be sold for 12 months. I can't quite remember why the, the delay in the timing was. Um, and she was the one, this, this, the client was the, uh, was the female spouse. She was the one having to move out of the family home. Um, but she did have a self-managed super fund and she'd identified a property that she would uh, really like to live in but clearly didn't have the capital or have the borrowing capacity to go and buy that. But once the, uh, the property settlement came through, she would. So uh, what the question was, could this self-managed super fund go and buy that particular property? which she could, it was off a, an unrelated third party, then lease it out to an unrelated tenant at market rate for 12 months. And at the end of 12 months, what she's, once she's got her, uh, her money from the property settlement, then buy that property off the fund at market value and then move into it. And I said, interesting, because every, every single transaction there, all is fine because you can acquire a property off a related party, you can lease it out to a, related, a non-related party, and then you can also acquire a property off your self-managed super fund as long as you do it at market rate. So every step along the way was fine. But I said, when you step back and look at that and all the facts and circumstances around it, what is she using the fund for? And the answer, when you think about it, is short-term finance. And that was another example um, of me saying, look, I think you've got a real problem with sole purpose there. And the advisor said, I'm glad you think so, because that, that was the reason, because I had that problem. But I suppose then you get, you know, I've told that story many times to SMSF training groups, etc., and you, you get two responses. You get those people that nod, <laughs> and then you just get the, the people that say, ah, oh, no, that, that would have been fine, or she just simply told the advisor too much. And that's where I suppose you start to get into problems around um, providing advice in these kinds of spaces, because based on what you were saying before, you can look at very transactional and look at the individual rules, but if you forget to step back and apply an overall filter of sole purpose, you can very quickly find yourself uh, with a, quite a significant breach on your hand. Absolutely, if you're the professional that's involved in developing that, um, unfortunately, there could be quite a significant negligence claim that may be brought, and that's quite ugly, particularly where it's the client that wanted to achieve the particular objective. I too have come across, I've, I've had situations, Craig, where I've read the professional advice has been that use your superannuation fund to buy the property in the holiday destination that you want to retire to. Buy the property in your superannuation fund, rent it out, short-term, long-term leasing, doesn't matter. You want to go and live by the beach in another five, 10 years' time, use your super fund to buy it, possibly even with a limited recourse borrowing arrangement. And when you attain the relevant conditions of release and it's time to retire, acquire the property from the superannuation fund. Um, you've now got the place you want to live in. That's a breach. Mm -hmm. That's actually a breach. So how... Oh, if you, what if you were intending to pay that property to yourself as an in-specie benefit? It's still a breach because... It's not about the provision of retirement benefits. It's about acquiring the property they want to go and live in. I know you want to go and live in it in retirement. And again, it's as you said, looked at it in each transaction in isolation. It's not a problem. But it was contained in a piece of advice that 
evidenced that the intention of the particular superannuation fund members, directors of the corporate trustee, was to acquire a property in superannuation which was in the area they wanted to live in. Had it said they're acquiring the property in that area because they've done a lot of research in that area because it's an area that they know because it's an area they are considering potentially retiring in and because of all the research they've done they've found this particular property in their opinion to be a good property to buy for that retirement purpose no problem it's the fact that it was expressed that this is the way in which you can buy your future retirement home So I remember, I also remember a circumstance, and I think it, a lot of it seems to come down to family law and people going their different ways and, and people all of a sudden having to cough up large sums of money. Um, we, we had a situation where uh, a client that wasn't particularly interested in having a self-managed super fund um, ended up with a self-managed super fund uh, and then the super fund buying his commercial property off him. Um, for the for the pure purpose of actually paying out that uh, that property settlement amount, um, and so the the question you sometimes get from advisors, well, how how do you provide that advice? Because the client's coming to you with these, you know, quite a significant, important or major kind of financial situation on their hands. How do you would to advise them in that situation? And the and the point I took at that point in time was. Park the whole discussion about the need for liquidity. What have you got here? You've got a client that owns their own business that is going through a divorce settlement that needs to pay out, that has also a high degree of uh, desire for control. Let's go back and say, right, park the whole idea that we need some capital. Let's think about this from the perspective that you've kind of hit at one of these critical turning points of your financial um, life, I suppose, and let's do some holistic financial planning. And if out of the bottom of all of that falls a self-managed super fund being an appropriate structure for, for you, and out of the bottom of that falls that, hey, an investment in property could suit your super fund in these particular circumstances because it lines up with your risk profile and blah, la 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 and the fact that you, you, know, you've got a, you feel like you have an expertise in property development and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then if out of the bottom of that falls a self-managed super fund with a business real property, then is what you're saying similar to what you were talking about with your retirement home? It's just the way you actually approach the problem from rather a, than, yep, go on. Yeah, yeah no, no, look, I'm, I'm agreeing. And um, look, unfortunately, many clients will get pub advice. You know, pub advice, my mate, mm-hmm. my, my friend, he's done it, she's done it, I want to do it. The best thing the professional advisor can do is help the client to actually look at it from that true retirement objective. And in doing that, believe it or not, you'll actually clean up what could be the biggest blunder the client will have, will have ever made. And that might be double-fold because not only by focusing the client on the true retirement benefit objective, the, the, not only will the language now being used to underpin the particular investment be kosher, be correct, be real, but in addition to that, you might even change the client's mind. They might not actually go ahead with the particular objective or plan that they had in place because 
they now see that this really should be used for their re- future retirement purposes. And not for something else, yeah. All right, moving on now. So obviously we've talked about sole purpose in the context of self-managed super funds and, and trustees um, going in and acquiring particular types of assets. Now I want to bring it back to financial advisors. Now, um, if we go back to you know the APRA circular from early 2000s that talked about sole purpose test, in that circular, oh, sorry, yeah, circular, what is it, number 3A4 for those people who want to look it up, um, it does confirm that financial advice fees can be charged to a member's interest in their superannuation fund, but only where the subject matter advice should relate to that member's interest in that particular fund and where it can link, be linked back uh, to the core and auxiliary purposes and that link must be reasonable, direct and transparent. Now, in terms of fee deductions for advice on non-super savings, they're quite clear that that is prohibited. So in, in that situation, they're saying that non-super products or any advice in relation to non-super products or asset allocation, um, any advice around health insurance or any general tax advice, you could not charge the fund for. Now, in addition to that, we also had um, the Hain Royal Commission come through and, and who could possibly have missed that? Now, um, Commissioner Hain also um, uh, came up with an opinion around fee deductions from member accounts. Uh, and I'll quote him here um, in terms of the question of whether super monies can be, made, be used to pay for broad financial advice that's not consistent with the sole purpose test. And what he said was, it is not consistent with the sole purpose test for a trustee to apply the funds held by the trustee in paying fees charged by advisor to consider or reconsider how best the member may order or make her financial affairs generally or may best make provision for post-retirement income goes on to say that fees for advice about particular actual or intended super investments would comply with the sole purpose test in relation to consolidation of superannuation accounts, selection of super funds or products, or asset allocation within a fund. Now, um, first of all, I'll get your view on uh, Commissioner Haynes' uh, perspective there. Um, and I'm quite interested in, say, in any views you might have at how that may um, conflict with an advisor's best interest duty? Um, look, my view is that uh, the comments by Commissioner Hain were somewhat narrow. That's that's my view. Um, my view is that um, giving retirement advice requires an understanding of everything about the client. And given the dominance now of superannuation, it's actually almost impossible to give advice in a retirement nature that doesn't address superannuation as well as other aspects of the individual and will therefore mean that the advice that's being given will not only deal with superannuation issues but of necessity must also deal with other issues associated with the individuals. What's my intended spend in retirement? How much money do I want to spend in retirement? The amount of money I want to spend in retirement is going to lead into the factor of how much money I need in retirement. And how much money I need in retirement is definitely going to lead into how I want to deal with my superannuation contributions today and my how aggressive I may want to be in my superannuation earnings. And that all stems from how much money do I want in retirement. So with this one, so I know that 
APRA has committed to undertaking a, a review of the sole purpose test because um, I think some of the the submissions to the to the Royal Commission took the view that the sole purpose test as it's currently written is quite ambiguous. Um, and so APRA and ASIC have agreed to undertake a review um, and to look at providing clear principles um, on how you should apply sole purpose test in the context of advisor service fees um, and examples of, of breaches that may require action. Now, hopefully that, um, that review will be published, um, I think APRA is saying at this stage in the second half of uh, 2020, um, but given what's happening with the, the COVID-19 pandemic and early release of super and whatever projects APRA may have that may or may not be pushed back, I, I simply don't know. Now, given that though, so in, in the interim, um, and given what APRA's previous comments are, I think, and, and taking into account your comments, um, I think there are certain things that I would look at and say, well, uh, that's quite easy. I know that I can quite clearly charge the fund for that advice. So things like rollover of benefits to a new super fund. Yes, I don't have any problems there. Advice on contributions to that fund. Clearly that's linked to the provision of retirement benefits. On advice on life insurance within the fund, um, commencement of account-based pensions within the fund, and also asset allocation within the fund. However, um, typically an advisor or a client doesn't come to an advisor just with those particular issues need, seeking advice. They're, as you say, seeking advice in relation to their full financial circumstances. And sometimes you can get questions around, well, debt reduction strategies and cash flow advice. Now, you would look at that potentially on face value and say, well, no, that's not got to do with an interest member's interest in their superannuation fund. But what if that debt reduction and cash flow advice allows for a contribution strategy to be implemented to allow the client to achieve their, their retirement objective of retirement at age 65 with a certain level of income? Um, what about a strategy to maximise age pension entitlement. Now, to me, that's an interesting one because you could look at that and say, if the client walks in and says, Craig, I just want some advice about how to maximise my age pension. I paid tax for 40 years. I want as much age pension as I can possibly get. Well, I would look at that and say, well, if the subject matter of the advice is purely in relation to just simply maximising the age pension, then no, I don't think you can charge the fund in that particular position. But it's really so simple and straightforward. I, I've talked to a lot of advisors and say, Craig, the, the context in which you're having a conversation about maximising the age pension allows you to reduce the drawdown on your age pension. So they're still going to end up with the same net level of income in retirement. But instead of drawing amounts over and above the minimum, you're allowing your client to, to reduce that minimum drawdown back to the, the prescribed minimum, which then addresses their longevity concerns. So then you kind of look at that and say, well, the advice is to maximise age pension, but it's been provided for the purpose of addressing a retirement need in terms of addressing their longevity risk. Do you have any comments around, around that? Look, I, I, it, um, I almost hate to say it, but frankly, it's about how the advisor has expressed the strategy and the, um, uh, together with the objective and the outcome. Where the strategy is so expressed as being the outcome, um, 
the advisor is leading down a path of breach of sole purpose. Where the outcome is the objective and clearly demonstrated as such, and that is the extension of the retirement, um, the monies in retirement, which is, of course, what superannuation is about, then the very approach that the advisor is now taking and expressing will lead to a, a view that this is about superannuation. Mm. What about also, I see problems here with, with best interest because if I'm going to be providing advice to a client in relation to an appropriate level of life and potentially TPD or um, yeah, let's just leave it at life and total and permanent disability insurance to hold within superannuation. Now I need to take into account the non-superannuation assets and liabilities. Now obviously that is going to take time uh, and effort on behalf of the advisor to incorporate and, and to take, get the, the complete picture of the client's circumstances which then can lead to advice about the level of insurance that they should have. Um, and I think that view that if we take a very, very narrow approach to the advice fees that can be charged to a superannuation fund, we almost leave an advisor in a position where they can't satisfy best interest? That, that's, that's, that's absolutely my opinion. Um, because the advisor who takes a very narrow view out of fear of how it will be treated from a superannuation perspective and whether the advice is properly attributed to superannuation means that they may have to take such a, 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 a narrow or biased view that they're actually ignoring the client more generally. And that is a breach of uh, the best interest yeah, duty. So, Peter, I think that pretty much uh, concludes Sole Purpose. Thank you so much. We've, I've learned a great deal to, today. I never knew there was such thing as cherry picker superannuation funds. Um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Craig. I've enjoyed it myself. Sole Purpose is such an important area that people need to understand. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the First Tech Podcast. Please remember, these podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you're not an authorised financial advisor, you need to remember that any scenarios considered during this podcast were for purely hypothetical and illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. And finally, you should read the relevant product disclosure statement before making any investment decision and once again consider talking to a financial advisor. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be reliable and accurate, no person including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited or Commonwealth Bank Group of Companies accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.